behind Fortino, no shot. Johnson back to Fortino. Fortino rolling puck down low. Shot scores! It's Pula again! Canada wins gold in overtime! Welcome to Changing on the Fly, a podcast about hockey, politics, and social change. I'm your host, Aaron Lakoff. Like blades on the ice, Changing on the Fly cuts right to the heart of today's most important issues in hockey. We go beyond the stats and pundits to bring you hard-hitting analysis on the politics of the game we love. From taking on racism and sexism in the locker room, to looking at the impacts of climate change on hockey, we amplify voices from the margins and bring them to center ice. Stay with us. Hey, what's up? Welcome to another episode of Changing on the Fly, a podcast for people who love hockey and liberation. My name is Aaron, I'm your host, and this is episode five of our second season. And a very happy new year to all of you. It is so good to be back with you in 2020. Seems like we've been hibernating a bit, we've been lying low, but it's just because we've been avoiding the winter weather outside and working on new content, of course. Our esteemed guest on the show today is Matt Hearn. Matt lives in Vancouver, where he's an activist, scholar, and writer. While he writes on a whole variety of fascinating topics, ranging from free schools to global warming to parenting, he's one of the most exciting and engaged radical sports philosophers that I know. Matt put out a book back in 2013 called One Game at a Time, Why Sports Matter, that I recommend to everyone who either loves sports because they're radical or who despise sports because they're radical. In that book, Matt makes an impassioned argument for understanding sports from what I would call a class-based perspective. He completely obliterates this often held snobbish idea that theater, dance, or music are part of highbrow culture, while sports is a lowbrow culture for imbeciles. Often using anarchist theory, he understands sports from an embodied perspective and often argues how sports can be creative, beautiful, but also how they can help us to express our genders and sexualities in wildly different ways. And if any of this has your eyebrows up in wonder, thinking, how the hell can that be? Then you got to listen to this interview. I caught up with Matt Hearn at his home in East Vancouver a while back while I was on a visit out there. He was just getting back from the gym. He made me breakfast and then we jumped into it. And in this interview, we talk a lot about hockey, but we go pretty far beyond that too. We talked about the social impact of head injuries, the place of fighting in hockey, and how the very gruff hockey personalities like Brian Burke could actually help us imagine new forms of masculinities. I love how in this interview you're about to hear, Matt reminds us that ultimately, sports is a creative endeavor. So let's get creative, let's turn our minds on, and get our sticks on the ice. Stay with us. All 
right, well, thanks again for being here with us on Changing on the Fly. If you're not already subscribed to this podcast, make sure you do subscribe so you will never miss an episode. You can, of course, find us on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, really wherever you love to download these things, you will find us. And before we get to our interview of the day with Matt Hearn, just want to remind you all of three very simple ways that you can support Changing on the Fly if you enjoy this podcast. The first is to share it on social media. You can retweet us. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash changing on the fly and share it with all your friends. You can also go to our podcast page on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this podcast and leave a rating or review. Helps boost those algorithms a little bit and helps other people find the podcast. Number two is you can also tell a friend about the podcast. I really do love how word of mouth is one of the main ways that people are finding out about podcasts these days. The next time you're with a group of friends and you guys are all talking about sports podcasts you love or really any podcast you love, do be sure to mention Changing on the Fly. And finally, if you really do enjoy this podcast, I really hope you can put your money where your mouth is and support us on Patreon. Even as little as $1 a month is a huge help to us. So you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash changing on the fly. There is a link that you can find in the show notes. Very easy to donate, very easy to support. And it is those very small donations that help keep this podcast going. Finally, we are a proud member of the Upford Network of Podcasts. You can find your new favorite podcasts at upfordnetwork.com. Be sure to check them out. All right, now let's get into that interview with Matt Hearn. I'm here in Vancouver with uh, Matt Hearn, who's our guest on the program today. Uh, Matt is a local activist, writer, and specifically we're going to be talking about uh, one of your books called uh, One Game at a Time, Why Sports Matter. came out a few years ago on AK Press. But first, Matt, thank you so much for being on the program. Well, it's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. Um, okay, so first, you know, before we get into uh, the book and talking about sports, talking specifically about hockey, uh, maybe tell us like a little bit about yourself, like your own life, and, and what brought you to this love of sports that you have. Well, that's a long, that's a long question there, bud. Um, okay, so uh, I'll answer it like this. You fill in the gaps that you need to fill in. Um, so I moved to here in East Vancouver on uh, Squamish Muscle and Slave with Tooth Territory in 1990 uh, to, to start having kids. Um, and uh, since then, my whole life, um, and before then for sure too, I was always kind of primarily identified and identified myself as a community organizer. And, um, and since then, I've spent the vast bulk of my time and my energy in, in a variety of kind of community organizations and activist ventures. Um, I currently work out in Surrey. I run a small project starting workers' co-ops with refugee kids. Um, and uh, at the same time, though, a, a huge part of my life, both my kind of personal uh, personal participatory life, but also my my fandom, was all bound up with, with sports. So I played sports as a kid. Um, I played all, you know, basically all sports as a kid. And I, was, I played uh, tennis at a real high level until I quit. And then I played basketball at a high level um, right through to college. Um, uh, I love playing sports, love thinking about sports. And I love being a sports fan. Um, mm-hmm. Back in the day, I would like, you would have to walk down to the 7-Eleven on Hastings Street to find a sporting news. Um, 
and I really didn't have that many people that I knew who could talk about sports and wanted to talk about sports. Um, uh, so when the Vancouver Grizzlies came here in 19... What year was that? 92? 92. I think 92 was when they got announced. Yeah, yeah. And then I was sort of interested in there. At the time, there was a um, an all-sports uh, weekly newspaper here. Uh, and so I just walked down there. And it was called Sports View. And I walked down there and um, bullshitted my way into a columnist job. Um, and then so from 93 to 2000, I was an NBA columnist and, and writer. I wrote for a bunch of uh, – I wrote for Sports View, but I wrote for a bunch of European uh, – uh, websites. I wrote for a bunch of European magazines, and I had a weekly radio show covering the Grizzlies. And I ended up traveling with the team a bunch. Um, and all that was basically partially to kind of satisfy an urge that I couldn't itch. Part of it was to make some money that we were not making because we were running community schools and youth centers. Mm. But partially also it was because sports were a, a huge part of my life, and I felt that uh, endemically and radical and, and leftist communities, people didn't want to talk about sports uh, and degraded sports, looked down upon sports, condescended to sports and certainly to people who were fans. Um, and so part of that was, part of that, there was a, a, a thing that people used to say in the 90s. Um, I don't know if you've, you've encountered this, but people used to say, well, okay, you play, you know, you're interested in sports. Well, I guess it's okay if you play sports, but watching it's just for an idiot's. And always that struck me as also really weird because, you know, you would never say that about, say, theater or about music or about dance. You would never say, well, you know, if you, uh, you know, if you act, that's, you know, that's fine, I guess. But watching plays, that's just for idiots. That's passive, you know, that's mm -hmm. consumptive. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the foolishness of that is, is, I mean, I don't have to go into it in a lot of ways, but I think in the last decade or maybe decade and a half, a lot of it through the kind of literature around performance, a lot of it through literature around fandom, but a lot of it through just kind of endemic, I would say, revulsion at the kind of elitist, snobby attitudes that look down on people who like watching sports. Um, I think it's made it a lot more, I think it's made, made it a lot more acceptable. Mm -hmm. um, honestly, since I wrote that book, I think it's become much more common to be able to hang out with radicals and activists and to say legitimately, I like to watch sports. Right. And I like to sit down and I like to turn on the television or I like to sit in a bar and I like to watch sports with A, with my friends or my family, but B, also I like watching with strangers too. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and you know what? I'm not going to apologize for that. And I actually think that's a totally legitimate site of culture and contestation. And it's also like a lot of fun. For sure. And so at what point like, did you really kind of start to think about bridging those two worlds that I guess at one point were very separate of radical politics and sports. Yeah. Uh, honestly, from my very earliest teenage years, from my very earliest, because I was, a, you know, an anarchist punk rock kid, um, and I, I felt bad. I hid it. I hid the fact, like I was like a, you know, like I was hitting a bottle of scotch under the under the desk or whatever, you know? Like I, I, I didn't talk about that, you know? And I was, I was embarrassed, right? And people like, were like, what? That's weird. Um, and all through college, like I literally, cause I'm, I've been a boxing fan all my life and I've, I've boxed and I, I think it's, uh, you know, there's lots of fucked up with boxing, of course, mm. um, but I love boxing. And I remember literally like I was having like an affair or something like that. I would like tell my, <laughs> tell my partner and my friends, like I was like, I'm just going to go do some grocery shopping and then sneak off to the north end of Kingston to watch Mike Tyson fights, you know? Yeah. Um, that was the only place that would show Tyson fights was in like biker bars and that, right? Wow. But literally, I mean, like I very literally and like, and honestly, I, I, uh, in my early years, I've, I've been with my partner since whatever, like the 
1990, I guess. And very literally in the early years, I like I literally hid from her the fact that I was boxing, um, partially because I didn't want because she would get mad. She didn't want me to get hit in the head as a regular basis, and yeah. totally justifiably. But I was like, that is so weird. Uh -huh. It's so weird of me, like that I would feel so embarrassed and so shy about this. Like I don't. Like, why would I have to hide parts of my life from people I care about and love and respect their opinion? Mm -hmm. um, and I really do feel, and, and we, would, we were talking about that a little bit earlier, um, is that I think that there has been a lot, there, it's always been true. It's like, there's always been this kind of melding of sports and activist kind of thinking and radical politics. And certainly people remember the kind of like the salad days of the, of the 60s, right? Like in the, the Jim Brown and the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's and the, um, you know, fist in the air at the Mexico Olympics. And people remember that and the kind of a civil rights era kind of activism. And then the kind of the earliest kind of first or second wave feminist-y kind of like Billie Jean King kind of stuff and that. Um, but people through the 80s and 90s kind of perceive sports as bereft of kind of like yeah. of any kind of social activist-y or any kind of social justice or, polit or leftist politics. But I think really in the last couple of decades, it's really re-emerged itself. And I... I I cannot tell you I know the reason why, because yeah. uh, I don't. But certainly now there are so many different sports in so many different ways that politics are absolutely infused. And not just in the kind of leftist, you know, leftist imaginaria, but certainly in everyday politics. You, you could walk into any single bar in America today, like literally, I mean this, I mean this actually literally, and have a conversation about Colin Kaepernick. Right. It might not be a great conversation, but you're going to be able to have a conversation about Colin Kaepernick and kneeling NFL players yeah. in any single bar, any place, and every single one of those people will have an opinion on yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, he's a conversation starter, too. I mean, like, I think that's what's really crucial. One of the things that you say in your book that I, I thought was really interesting is that, you know, you mentioned, of course, like Kaepernick, um, Billie Jean King, Muhammad Ali, like these kind of these icons that get held up as uh, the activist athlete, right? And, 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 kind of like what you were I, I guess alluding to here is that that sports should really be understood as important um in and of themselves like like beyond those moments of like people raising their fists or taking a knee and so can you expand a little bit around that so, and, and that was certainly the case is that sometimes like um uh, leftists or whatever would have some kind of passing kind of interest in in Muhammad Ali would like Muhammad Ali for his activism but wouldn't care about him as an athlete right wouldn't care about him particularly um, they would instrumentalize all kinds of people. But I think there's actually, and I think there's something separate there, right? I think there's been a, and certainly it's been true for me, but I, I feel like it's true in the larger culture. It's become much more acceptable um, in everyday kind of leftist or progressive politics to say, I just like sports. Like I, I, and to be able to talk about sports in and of themselves as a site of cultural production or whatever. Um, I have spent some time thinking about sports as art, um, and where those distinctions lie. And I think in the end, my, um, I kind of settle on the idea that those are useless categories mm -hmm. um, and not worthy at all, um, except to say that sports as a site of creativity um, is just as fecund and just as po has just as much possibilities as any other form of physical or creative expression. And there's a continuum of kinds of, of kinds of creative expression, and I think they're all valuable, right? Yeah. And I think that also has time, has also maybe has something to do with critiques around high and low art, for example. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the kind of critiques that might have been possible in the past where you could say, you know, well, painting is art and comics are something else again, whatever they are, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever people would say about comics. I think it's, I mean, it's, that's not something that anybody really says any longer. Mm -hmm. But it's certainly the case that I think you could extend that to say, well, why is, for example, then dance considered art and, uh, you know, and ice figure skating considered sport? 
those distinctions get very, very blurry. And I think we can just draw a long series of continuums, especially when you people try to draw certain things. Well, sports have got competition infused into them. Yeah, maybe sometimes, but so does like the art world, for example, right? It's like there's nothing not competitive about the art world, for yeah. example, right? About the corporatism, right? Well, how many concerts have you gone to with, you know, DeMaurier or like cigarette ads? You know, there, every critique you can have of the art world, you could have of the sports world and, and vice versa. And I think it's just, I think it's worthy just to think about sports as a place of individual and collective creativity yeah. um, and to just leave it at that and just yeah. to say whatever form our creativity takes uh, is, is interesting and valuable. Yeah. I want to pick up on that idea a little bit because um, I think that's so interesting. We're both hockey fans and this is a hockey podcast. So maybe like looking at hockey specifically, what what do you see as the kind of creativity that's happening on the ice there around the game? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, it's like, um, and it's hard to know, right? Because it's like, well, if you're not playing hockey, right? And and uh, I grew up on the West Coast, and so I don't play ice hockey hmm. um, because we I lived in the country, so we didn't have a rink anywhere near us. I never got cold enough to skate on ponds. So, but I played road hockey and floor hockey and all that. All my I still play hockey, you know, get a bunch of buddies together and play in a gym and that, and and and, and I, I played basketball and. Um, and the basketball and hockey are actually very similar in, all, in many ways. Actually, the, the movements and the patterns are extraordinarily similar, like they are across so many sports. Mm-hmm. But there's 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 a particular form, and you probably know this. You, like anybody who plays hockey knows this feeling. You get the puck on the left wing, and you're skating down, you know, or in my case, running down mm-hmm. uh, the left wing, and you know, you're on a two on, you're on a three on two. That is a moment of intense creativity right there. Mm-hmm. That moment of kind of freedom and of a kind of open fieldness where you're thinking about how to, how to think about your body and how to think about the next particular steps you're going to take. There's an absolute creativity in that moment. Mm-hmm. In my case, I feel it when that, I bring the ball up over, over half court when I'm playing basketball. And that moment there is just an absolute moment of, of particular kind of creative space. Yeah. And it's embodied creativity, absolutely. Um, and it has all kinds of particular possible outcomes, um, none of which, and a part of that I think is so, which is why people are so attracted to sports in a lot of ways, um, is that is that there's a particular kind of spontaneity to it and a particular kind of finality to it. Mm-hmm. When I take the ball over half court playing basketball or take the puck down the left wing, that thing that happens, whatever happens, whether it's, you know, whether I fall on my face or commit some kind of heinous turnover or do something really cool um, or just, you know, or do something kind of prosaic, um, that will never happen again. Mm. That will never happen. That one instance will never happen again. It's Mm. over and it's done with. It's going to exist in my mind and in my middle-aged white guy mind, I'm going to exaggerate it like crazy and I'm going to tell you what an unbelievable move I made. Um, But it's gone. And that moment is, it's only shared between those people. Mm. It's only, maybe somebody watched it, but the only people you really share with are the people that you're on the field or the court with. Right. And it creates a particular kind of, I would say, like a collective or like a, a creative commonality. Mm-hmm. Um, they, people often talk about, um, this is going to be a, uh, this is kind of a cliche, but people say like, um, there's something that is revealed in sports that you can't, that's not revealed in any other circumstance. And I, and I really do mm-hmm. think that's true in a lot of ways, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't want to be essentialist about it, but so for example, and I'll, I'll tell you the story on this in a couple, I'll come in in a couple of ways. Um, you know, when, when, when Barack Obama was first uh, um, courting Michelle Obama, mm-hmm. Michelle kind of looked at her for a while and was like, well, and you know, maybe, and told her brother to take him out to play basketball. 
Okay. And said, well, take him out to play basketball with the guys for a while and then come back and tell me if he's an okay guy. And so Michelle Obama's brother took him out, played with him for a while, and then came back and was like, yeah, he's a good guy. Okay. <laughs> um, which is kind of an apocryphal story, but yeah. I love it because it's actually the, partially the way you get to know people in a certain kind of way. Mm-hmm. You're sitting just hanging out, having a coffee with somebody, and everybody looks great, you know? Right. But you take them out on, and play sports with them for a while. Um, when you get tired, when you get frustrated, when you get banged up, when you're not playing well, mm-hmm. um, or all the reverse of that, when you are playing, how do you act? How do you behave? Do you get back on defense? Do you pass the ball? Are you quibbling over fouls? When someone falls, are you like, what do you do? Like how, there's a, so much that's revealed in that particular kind of physical collective encounter mm-hmm. in sports that it's not like a truth theorem or something. And I'm not going to go there because there's all kinds of other ways, you know, like you think of like going out dancing with your friends or like being in a bad situation or going travel. There's all kinds of ways you get to know people in, in, in different kinds of ways. But there's something about sports, about the kind of, the particular kind of intensity of sports playing with people and playing against people, that you get some kind of insight into who they are. Mm-hmm. You get a particular kind. It's not always truthful, but you but you do get some kind of insight. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's something shared and something around that creativity that is shared. Something, and you, forgive me, because you're on the West Coast, we'll let it pass, but there's something magic about it. Yeah. And that you can't you can't replace in any other way, right? Right. Let me give you another one, one sure. other example. And I'm sorry, I'm, I know you've got other questions, but... Um, after, because I stopped boxing some time ago because I wanted to stop getting hit in the head. Mm-hmm. Um, so I picked up, uh, just for a little minute, I picked up jiu-jitsu, okay. which is a, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is a non-concussive combatant sport. Basically, it's just submission wrestling. Because mm-hmm. um, I like I like fighting a lot, um, but I didn't want to get hit in the head. So I was like, okay, I'll try this uh, for a while. And so we, I joined a club, and you know, you go to the club, and you, they do teach you some moves, and then pair, you pair off. Um, and you get, uh, you know, you just get paired off with people and they say, okay, go practice for a while, right? Practice this. And you roll around with somebody. Um, it's incredibly intimate. You're literally spreading your legs and somebody's kneeling between your legs and lying on top of you face to face. And then you just roll around, right? Like, and you're like as intimate as you could possibly be with somebody aside from having sex with them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, you know, m- multiple minutes in a row of like your entire bodies, you know, from your toes to your crotch to your face pressed deeply against each other. Right. Um, uh, and so I got paired up this this one time I'm thinking of with this this guy who was like I weigh maybe like 175, um, and I'm 50 years old, and and the guy that I was paired with was I would say generously speaking probably 250 and maybe like 22 years old. Okay. Um, and I just sort of said hey, and he grunted at me. I didn't know his name. I still don't know his name. Um, and what like he was I, some we we were very different sizes, but there's something that happens in jujitsu like happens in all sports but happens particularly in combat sports is you have to trust the person you're working with in this mm. intense degree because literally the person could like really damage you. Jiu-Jitsu almost kill you or probably kill you or break your neck or something. So you have to trust people. I didn't know this kid's name. I never met him before in my life. I don't know what his background was like. He was like a, I'm going to say maybe Filipino, but like whatever, a giant kind of thuggy kid with neck tattoos. Um, and so here I go. So I lie down on my back and I spread my legs and he lies on top of me and he's like, I'm like, oh God, the guy's heavy. And then we go at it for, you know, whatever, five minutes. Um, and at the end of it, you know, the instructor, you know, blows the whistle and says, okay, stop. And uh, I was just exhausted. Like I was like, I was just, because there's nothing more exhausting than you just, I was just absolutely spent because I was trying to like, just wrestle this kid who was like, you know, just way heavier and way stronger and way younger than I was. Um, and I was just standing there bent over trying to catch my breath. And he was like, hey man, you okay? And I was like, no, fuck no, man. I'm fucking, the cord is dead. And he just stuck out his arm and just like in the most gentle, tender way, rubbed my back. Yeah. Like in this really sweet and gentle way. Wow. And I was just like, I was like, 
Like, what the fuck circumstance are two random stranger men could have an opportunity to be so gentle and trusting and tender with each other? Mm-hmm. That's actually... No, it doesn't happen like that all the time. Right. That's not yeah. all the time. But I was like, what other circumstance? Like, I don't know like, his name. I still know his name. That was the one time I ever saw him. But it was just like such a... Like, in that moment, I knew something about that kid. Mm-hmm. I can tell you I know something about him. That's the only thing I know about him, really. Mm-hmm. Except for he's fucking strong as hell. <laughs> but... Um, but you don't like don't throw those moments out like uh, cavalierly. Like those are like to me. I remember that because that was a real thing. Mm-hmm. So you just made me think of another thing that was really interesting that I learned through reading your book, <clears throat> one game at a time. And people listening to this should definitely read it. It's, you know, it's a good little read. Like I think you can read it in a day and covers a lot of different sports. Um, but again, okay, specifically talking about hockey. One thing I really liked about it is you bring up the story of uh, Brian Burke and. You know, the fact that Brian Burke, uh, who's now, I think, uh, works for the Calgary Flames, but he was uh, head coach of the the Maple Leafs and a bunch of other teams for a long time. Uh, He started the You Can Play Project, which uh, empowers uh, queer athletes across uh, all different sports. And the fact that, you know, Brian Burke is the embodiment of this uh, machismo in, in hockey, that this hard male exterior... And, and so I'm wondering if you could like maybe expand on that. Is that something that, that you kind of see a lot in sports, this kind of difference between like the hard outer shell and the kind of soft inner shell? Because it makes me think of a lot of, you know, yeah. the story you just shared. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's totally true. I, I think it's also the reverse is true oftentimes, right? It's oftentimes, um, and this is what people who are critical of sports see all the time, is that actually that, you know, that hard outer shell gets harder when you play sports in some ways, right? The sports inculcates this macho prick kind of like, you know, you know, hyper-masculine, um, you know, oftentimes homophobic, very oftentimes misogynist kind of, you know, sets of attitudes. But maybe often it does very different things as well, right? It does very, because you're so vulnerable playing sports, right? Like you're at, like you are um, exposing your body and your potentials and your lacks and your like exhaustions to your teammates and to your opponents. Um, you make yourself so open to them that you are like, you're at, you're at your, your, all your kind of visages and all your kinds of pretensions get stripped away very quickly because you just become, you're just trying to keep up or you're just trying to play or you're just trying to like not get hurt or you're just trying to like, you know, whatever, not like puke on the field or whatever, right? Um, you make yourself very vulnerable in that. Mm. And and people talk about that. I think that that kind of vulnerability is bound up with the idea of, of, of teamness, right? Mm-hmm. And when it's right, that teamness extends to your opponent. Um, and so that you, it's, it's not just that your team and your teammates and the people you're playing with ostensibly on your side, have your back unconditionally. It's actually that your opponents have your back unconditionally as well in a certain kind of way. Hmm. Um, and that you're actually, and so I'm going to see if I can work my way around to this. Um, but I actually have an argument around around boxing in particular in this. So I've been a boxing fan my whole life. Um, is that I don't think boxing is violence. Um, I think it's, it's, boxing is absolutely dangerous. It's absolutely scary. It's absolutely like very physical. It's damaging. Um, it's probably not very good. It's like, you know, like it's hard for me to defend boxing um, in some ways because it's just, it's bad for your head. It's just, there's no question about it. But it's not violence. Violence is by definition non-consensual. Um, but boxing is, is in the very specific sense and we can talk about it's consent in a larger kind of socioeconomic kind of uh, uh, patterns that force people to do work against their will. But, but basically boxing at its heart is a consensual activity, which is that we agree. Mm-hmm. Which is why you will often see, like so often, boxers, both professional boxers, amateur boxers, 
um, at the end of the fight, um, however it ends, run over and immediately hold each other's heads and kiss each other and check if you're okay. And for a, a non somebody who's who's not familiar with boxing, it just seems wild. Which is literally that guy was trying to punch the other guy in the face as hard as he could, and then a bell went off, and I ran over and I was kissing your cheek and saying, telling you I loved you. Hmm. And it's because you're in a contract together, right? You've entered into some kind of agreement together to perform this, and you know how scary it is for each of you. So every time I've ever fought in any circumstance, literally, I'm just I feel like puking, and I look at the other guy. I'm like, that guy is so much fucking bigger and tougher and stronger than I am. I'm gonna get I'm gonna get killed here, and I'm afraid. And I presume hmm. he thinks the same thing. Um, and it's an agreement, right? You don't want to hurt them. You want to hurt them, but you don't want to hurt them. Yeah. Hurt, hurt them. And that's true for sports. Why is at the end of uh, matches that are like bitterly fought, like say in hockey games, why do hockey players like all talk about each other as being like brothers and want to hug each other at the end of the game and shake? I mean, not universally. There are some times when guys hate each other afterwards, but rarely. Mm-hmm. At the end of the game, the the you know at the at the, the after the the final you know buzzer goes off, people want to go and you know yeah. Third period ends. People are are like. Are hugging each other and taking care of each other and like are in some kind of fidelity to one another. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's actually it's a, it's an agreement and you have a, some kind of relationship with people that you don't otherwise. Yeah. Certainly your teammates and all that stuff around teammates and around, um, you know, around support and solidarity and protecting each other and that that is so obvious in hockey, right? And mm-hmm. and you know about like the hockey code and how weird it is and like how. Well, one guy hits the other guy. You got to run out of punch. But it's all this kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And you can like laugh about it or whatever. But that the code is mostly bullshit. But it also points to certain kinds of solidarities and commonalities and shared behaviors that are like, like very difficult to find in other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know, like for me too, like I had always thought about fighting and hockey at first as violence. And then started to kind of see the other perspective in terms of like people saying, well, actually, in a way, in a weird roundabout way, it keeps the game safer because it's kind of like your safeguard against people doing the really dirty hits, sure. right? It holds people accountable. Right. right. And I, like, honestly, I don't buy that argument mm-hmm. um, because it, it presumes that the really dirty hits are, are inevitable, mm-hmm. which is not true at all. You can work those out of the game as well, right? You can work headshots out of the game. You can work slightly. It's just possible, right? I, I think... And I'm not a fan of hockey fighting, but I but what you're pointing to is I see the argument, right? Mm-hmm. I see the argument here, um, and it's worth talking about, right? Mm-hmm. And back to when you were talking about Brian Burke, like that You Can Play project, it was built out of uh, Brian Burke's kid coming out um, and then dying in a car crash just awfully. Mm-hmm. And then in, uh, Brian Burke and his other son built this You Can Play project. And I think there's, there's pos- it's p- plausible critiques of it, but basically they produce a whole series of like little kind of like PSAs or whatever, like, you know, little ads and stuff. And you have like just scores and scores and scores of hockey players standing up saying really articulate, unbelievably interesting things about, about, you know, LGBTI folks playing. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's for real. I think it's Mm -hmm. for real. I don't think it's, I don't think it's, I don't think it's bullshit. And the, the the thrust of it is if you, if you can play, like if you want to, you know, if you want, if you can play hockey, you can play, Mm -hmm. play with us. Um, doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, and like, or what your background is, or who you sleep with. Like, mm-hmm. come play. Mm-hmm. Um, and I defy anybody to watch all those uh, you can play ads and not think there's something really cool going on. Yeah, I think in some instances it's bullshit, just because I have a bit of a hard time kind of believing that someone like Ryan Getzlaff or uh, or Shaw are actually kind of taking it seriously after they've made like really homophobic chirps, and then they get appointed to be like 
the ambassadors. Like it's kind of seems like they're saving face. But I mean, in other situations, I hear I you. I hear you. But then you know, um, but but you're but then you're in the mob, and that's kind of I guess part of our conversation, which is actually that there's there's so much room to talk there, mm. right? There is so much room to talk, and I will tell you absolutely. Um, there is like very, there are very few locker rooms without at least one queer dude in it, mm. and most of us know that. Yeah, um, just and they haven't come out yet. Yeah, absolutely. Or sometimes they do; they just don't do it publicly mm-hmm. um, for all kinds of reasons. Um, and and I'm not going to argue that somehow like sports locker rooms are some great place of like tolerance and acceptance and like um, you know radical political gender politics because they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't even think of a locker room that I've ever heard of um, that has like got great gender politics, but you can have that conversation. That conversation is starting and it's plausible in all kinds of ways, right? Mm. Um, and it's a place to talk about it. And so Ryan gets left, sure. I'm sure he said like some fucking gnarly shit mm. on the ice. But he also did this ad. Mm. And you got to know that that's, um, he's, he knows that. He's thought about that and we can talk about that, right? Yeah. Um, but it, it gets it into this particular kind of maw of like, well, what did you mean, man? Mm. You're not, like you can get suspended for a homophobic comment now in the mm. NHL. That's mm-hmm. wild. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. wild. Yeah, totally. Um, and so, speaking of those, I mean, and, there, and within that, there's all kinds of like crazy contradictions, right? Mm. And so, just to uh, reiterate that there's like any, like any critique you want to throw at the sports world, from its homophobia to its you know endemic misogyny to its corporatives to its xenophobia, all those are, are true. But there's a lot more to there that right. And it's just mm-hmm. such a fecund place, such a such a rich and dense place for talking about this. And to, and to not just talking about issues and radical politics, but actually seeing them embodied in the real world. Yeah. Um, that I think is, is unbelievably valuable um, and is such an important part of people's lives and so many kinds of people's lives that I think it's, it really behooves all of us to think about it in a, in, a, in a generous way, not the patronizing, condescending way that the left is and the, the kind of the elitist left has so long fallen into. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, so we were talking a little bit about um, head injuries and fighting, and that kind of leads me to my next question. Um, so you wrote another book called Watch Yourself, Why Safer Isn't Always Better. I have to admit, I haven't read it, but I actually remember you doing um, a workshop in Montreal, the Anarchist Book Fair a few years ago, talking about, mm-hmm. you know, like a lot of um, a lot of your thinking around uh, how we see safety in society. And so so in that book, I know you kind of touch a little bit of, on hockey and, and hockey injuries, which hockey is oftentimes not seen as a very safe sport, you know, um, concussions is, it's a huge issue that, that's been coming up uh, most certainly in, in, in the NFL and in football in recent years, but in hockey as well. And I'm wondering if you could, yeah, talk a little bit about that, like how you approach oh, safety a, in hockey. Yeah, this is a hard one, man. This mm-hmm. is a hard one. Um, yeah. Um, I'm going to talk about football for a second. I'm going to bring, sure. bring it to hockey. Um, so I'm a gigantic football fan. Mm. I love football. The CFL, not so much. Okay. Sorry. Um, sorry to all you nationalists out there. Um, the NFL, 100%. I love the NFL. I love watching it. Like for, in all its awfulness, two years ago I went cold turkey. I just can't, I can't handle the, the concussions. Um, I watched Tony Dorsett do an interview. Um, who was, for those of you that are too young to remember Tony Dorsett, he was like an All-American running back for the... For the Dallas Cowboys, like handsome, fun, like incredibly charming, big smile, like corporate, like salesperson, like he was like a just like a kind of a perfect embodiment of like a of a of a of a charming, like well mannered, thoughtful, or you know handsome football player. 
And uh, a couple years ago, I watched an interview with him where he just was like sobbing and sobbing. He's like, I'm a monster. He said, I don't know why I, my, chi my children are afraid of me. I don't know why I go into these rages. I don't know, like, I, I don't understand why I like, I, I can't, like, I can't change my behavior. I sit in dark rooms. I like cry all the time. It's like, he's just a broken man and he's not that old. It's true for so many football players. It's like, mm -hmm. like uh, you know, the the junior Seals and the and the Andre Waters. These guys shooting themselves in the chest because they know there's something fucked with their heads and they want someone to look at their brains after they died and to tell them they have you know CTE, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's just the concussions are awful. And I've had a lot of concussions in my life, and uh, and I suspect I will probably end up with some kind of CTE. And it's like the consequences are awful. Um, and the NFL is so callous, and I don't. The NFL as, a, as an organization is, is like a, I can't even come up with the words bad enough to, to, mm -hmm. to talk about how much I hate the NFL as an organization and how callous they are and throwing mostly young, poor and black men into like into the game as just cannon fodder and not giving a fuck about them. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like I can make that argument, the same argument I made about boxing, right, which is that young men making choices uh, to, you know, sacrifice their own bodily integrity for, for the love of the game. But it's also hard to ask young men who are in, in like an incredible physical shape, think of themselves on top of the world and have very few other options to actually make a quote unquote choice to play football. Right. Because when you're certainly when I was 23 years old, I if I was a that good, you know, that that if I was eligible to play in the NFL and someone said, hey, man, you're going to be a fucking, you know, you're going to have your you know, a whole bunch of concussions and you're going to be not who you think you are when you're 50. I'd be like, ah, fuck it. Let's do it. A hundred percent would because the joy of playing football is so great. Mm -hmm. um, um, I, I, there's no question I would have. I absolutely would have, in, in part because football, you know, needs a fucking attitude because it's, you know, to, to be a great football player. Mm -hmm. I, I can tell you unequivocally that I would have taken that. I would have taken that gamble. I would have taken that. I would have made that trade in, in a quarter second without ever thinking about it. Mm -hmm. um, like so many other young people, and certainly young men in particular, make those gambles with our health and safety because we don't give a fuck, or because we're crazy, because hormones are fucking running through us like, you know, like a freight train, and because we don't have an idea about what life would possibly be like at fifty. But now that I'm fifty, I can look back and say it's 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 so awful what is happening to so many young men, and the the degradation of their of their quality of life for like decades is is just awful and terrible. I think young people, uh, in particular, should be able to make good, should be able to make choices like with their bodily, with bodily risk. If they're breaking an ankle or breaking a leg or even breaking a neck or like, you know, whatever, whatever kinds of pain and suffering they go through. But the the concussions, I just can't handle. Mm. I just can't handle. So I stopped watching football entirely. Mm. Now I'll tell you that I cheat. Sometimes I can't handle it, and I got go watch a game in a bar. Um, and especially when I'm in America and when I'm just, you know, hanging around, I, I love going to a bar and talking with people about football. Mm. Um, and I still follow it a little bit, but I will tell you, uh, untruthfully that I, that I've quit cold Turkey. Okay. I'm trying to quit, quit cold Turkey, but I, I have a smoke here and then. Yeah. Um, and I feel the same way about hockey in a lot of ways too, right? Like I think like the bar guards and like the, um, like the, the Joey Coasters and the, um, and the enforcers, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's too much to ask. I think it's too much, too much to ask of people. Um, most NFL fi uh, NHL fighters are not good fighters. Mm. <laughs> they're just a bunch of thugs um, who know how to chuck. But they're doing bare-knuckle chucking on ice where they can bash their heads falling down. And I, so many NHL enforcers are suffering the same fate as NHL player, as NFL players. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's conscionable. Mm -hmm. I think it's just too damaging. Mm -hmm. You see some of those fights, you know, some, some of the old Bob Probert fights or whatever, and you're like, 
no wonder that that guy suffered like disastrously for the last part of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, so just on that basis, I think I, I, I would I would not want. And they don't know how to defend themselves. Like as, a, as someone who's boxed a lot, about 80% of boxing is defense. Right. Um, and you need to know how to, and you, you need to have a referee in there. And so you have referees who don't know how to officiate fights, and you have fighters who don't know how to defend themselves. You're doing bare knuckled fighting on the ice. It's, it's, nah, it's too dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's too dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, NFL, the NHL, I think, has done a good job in, um, uh, in reducing, not, not enough, in my opinion, but headshots. You can teach young people and you can teach NHL players and you can teach athletes at every level of hockey to not hit each other in the head. Mm-hmm. Uh, mistakes get made, sure. Um, but just like you, there's uh, some things you just don't do. You don't slew foot somebody, for example. You don't you know, crush somebody when they're against the boards. Um, you can get that out of the game, mostly. Sure, mistakes get made, but basically I think hockey at every level needs to get rid of the fighting and get rid of the uh, get rid of headshots. Mm-hmm. People are too big, too strong, and... Uh, it's just too dangerous at the speed that hockey is played at to to fuck around with your head. So, yeah. um, I, I'm I'm absolutely in favor of like being really critical um, around about around kind of discourses of risk and and discourses of safety. Um, and I think the the place where I'll step in on that one and the way in is somebody who's had a lot of concussions and is now a 50 year old guy who is like conscious of his conscious of his physical you know uh, frailties uh, is that headshots are just should be off the table. Mm-hmm. I don't know, and I, I don't see any damage to the game of hockey by taking headshots and fighting out. Mm-hmm. Football is another matter. I can't see how you can do that in football. Mm-hmm. The way the game is constructed, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know about that. Yeah. Like, if guys end up, after, after a career in hockey or football, like, not being able to walk, eh, fuck it, whatever. That seems like a fair trade. Yeah. If you can't, like, if you can't talk to your children because you're like, you know, because you don't know how to like control your emotions and you fly in uncontrollable rages and you sit in a dark room crying and you're depressed for the last 30 years, fuck that. That's not a bargain anybody should be should be asked to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, like, I, I do think it's interesting how the role of the enforcers kind of slowly being phased out of the NHL. Like, I remember uh, growing up uh, in the early 90s i was a leafs fan in kind of like their somewhat glory days and dougie gilmore and um i used to watch hockey with my brothers and uh every time a fight would start we would like kind of start imitating and then my mom actually like banned us from watching hockey for a while and like yeah i remember like there used to basically be a fight every game and and now you're seeing it way less you know so I i think it's just there's nobody who knows that game and could talk to an old enforcer or talk to an old NFL player and honestly say it's worthwhile. You can have all the beauty and all the power of hockey and get that shit out of there. You're not mm-hmm. going to hurt the game of hockey by getting rid of headshots and getting rid of fighting. Mm-hmm. No matter what anybody says. Yeah. Anybody who says otherwise is, is just full of shit. Um, and they're clinging to some like retrograde ideology that is just not true. Mm-hmm. Um, so the part about fighting, actually making it safer, I, I don't buy it at all. Because what it presumes is a is a is a is a bifurcation. Is that well, those guys will do that anyways. Actually, you can get both of that. You can get the dirty play out, and you can get the fighting out. Mm-hmm. That's wholly possible. There's a universe where that that works just fine. Yeah, yeah. So, lastly, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, um, yeah, again, like kind of maybe bringing it back specifically to hockey, and as someone who's thought a lot about the intersections between sports and social justice. One thing I'm always curious about, so I'll just ask you, is like we see a lot of amazing stuff happening right now in um, American pro sports, specifically the NFL and the NBA 
tons of players last year speaking out against Trump, against the Muslim ban, against police brutality. Haven't seen so much in, in the world of hockey, but I'm, I'm curious to know like, what you see is the kind of potential to see movements for social justice expressed within hockey. And I'm not talking maybe just the NHL, but we could talk about the NHL too, if it's yeah, a good yeah. kind of jumping off point. Yeah, what's what's that new movie? Uh, what's the new movie the, about? About hockey. It's a brand new movie about hockey. Oh, right? really? Yeah, yeah, what the hell's it called? Oh, Indian Horse. That's what it's called. Thank you, Indian, Indian, Indian Horse. Horse. Yeah. Um, I, I think it, in, if... If hockey has any pretensions of, of imagining itself as its as a national pastime, sure, I'm amenable to that argument. You know, people want to watch hockey. Um, you know, everywhere in Canada, people seem to be articulate and thoughtful and invested in hockey, both you know men's and women's hockey, at least women's at the Olympic level. Um, I think there's no reason that every single important social issue cannot be infused throughout those conversations. Mm. Uh, and I would speak at least at the very at the for for the very beginning, and maybe one of the most important, like certainly around gender, but certainly around indigeneity, right, and around indigenous issues, right. That mm-hmm. the idea that and this this new movie Indian Horse, I, I think there's I just read an article about there's some problems with uh, a couple of the actors. Um, um, yeah, it's not it's not beyond critique. But, no, no, absolutely. Yeah. But um, um, but I think certainly around a lot around a lot of uh, those particular issues, I think in issues of of indigenous sovereignties and of indigenous, um, of, of uh, I think I think in particular, I don't see any reason that thinking about uh, indigenous settler relations cannot be infused through hockey, mm-hmm. um, in all kinds of ways, because um, there's ironies there's ironies embedded throughout the way we think about Canada and as an as an you know putatively an anarchist and an, as an as an anti nationalist. Um, I'm interested in people's fidelities and people's commitments and people's um, particular kinds of ideas about what they belong to and who they think they belong. Like what, what kinds of what kinds of commitments do they think they they that compel them, right? Mm-hmm. And I think people describe themselves in all kinds of ways as as hockey fans. Um, people describe themselves as who they cheer for because you know you go all over the place, right? When I'm in the Northwest Territories, one of the first questions you ask right away is like. Well, who do you cheer for? Do you cheer for Edmonton or do you cheer for Winnipeg or do you cheer for, you know, and even that conversation begins mm-hmm. to bring up all kinds of ideas around fidelities and sovereignties, I would say, um, in a very loose kind of way, right? But it's, mm-hmm. um, I would say that there's no particular issue that we can't talk about in a Canadian context that shouldn't be applicable to Canadian hockey. Mm. So, again, we've been speaking with uh, Matt Hearn here in Vancouver. Uh, lastly, like I know you, you, you write and give talks and you're active around so many different things. Um, what are you up to these days? What are some of your projects? <laughs> well, uh, what can I say? Well, I just finished a book, uh, about global warming called global warming and the sweetness of life. Uh, me and Am Joe Hall and, uh, Joe Sacco just finished it. We just spent a lot of time going back and forth to the tar sands, uh, yeah. spending time in, in Fort McMurray. And in Lubicon territory, and spending a lot of time in a little indigenous community south of town called uh, Janvier. Um, and so trying to think through global warming through a, a different kinds of series of lenses and to think, really is trying to think through global warming through land politics and decolonization. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's we've been. That's where I just was. I've been. I've been out just just now. Just to, been touring that book around. Yeah. It just came out like last week. Oh wow! Uh, so we just started touring that around. I was okay. I had it in a bunch of places, and we'll be wandering around with it. Um, yeah, that's it. Let's, okay. let's leave that there. Yeah. There's we'll there's other stuff, yeah, yeah. but yeah, you all can look me up. Okay, <laughs> amazing. Well, thank you so much. Oh, thanks a lot, man. Thanks yeah. for having me.
And welcome back here on Changing on the Fly. If you like that interview with Matt Hearn, do be sure to check out some of his books. He actually has a brand new one out in the time since we recorded that interview, and it's called On This Patch of Grass, City Parks on Occupied Land. My personal favorite of his is One Game at a Time, Why Sports Matter on AK Press. A huge thanks to Matt for that wonderful interview and for making me breakfast in your lovely home. It is deep January right now as I record this, January 2020, and inevitably it's that time of year when any hopes that the Habs might have displayed at the beginning of the NHL season quickly fade and the team starts tanking. I really do love my Montreal Canadiens, but it's a team of little hope right now. So indeed, I do need something to keep me positive about hockey, and this podcast is definitely that. On Changing on the Fly next month, it's going to be Black History Month, and we're finally going to bring you that episode on the Colored Hockey League of Nova Scotia, as told by direct descendants of athletes who played in that league in the late 1800s or early 1900s. I'm very excited about that. So again, do be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss that next episode. And last but not least, we got to thank all our Patreon supporters, Aiden, Nick A, Jeff, Jeremy, Dan, Nick T, Shona, Andrew, Ted, Ellen, Amber, Bruce, Sam, and Grill. Genuinely, truly, without your support, we would not be able to do this podcast. And if you want to hear your name amongst that honor roll list of supporters, then you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash changing on the fly. Make a donation for as little as $1 a month, and there's some great perks if you do that. We'll be back next month. Thanks again for listening. We are out of here. Be well.